0: Lake Minnetonka is like nothing else if you've never seen the shorelines that dot my home state of Minnesota. It still takes my breath away sometimes. The area around Minnetonka is spiritual to the people of the Northern Plains. Even now, near the giant homes in this affluent area are ancient burial mounds and artifacts from the people who were here first, and whose history remains here in earthworks created by the mound people indigenous to the region. The Dakota and Ojibwe were able to keep Lake Minnetonka, mostly protected from European immigrants building on the sacred ground, even during the genocide of the Dakota people in the 1800s. But once indigenous people were forced from their lands, this sacred place made way for the steamboats and grand hotels of the late 19th century. With people now forced onto reservations, the United States Congress authorized the creation of boarding schools for indigenous children. They were separated from their parents and placed into what were known as industrial schools or boarding schools, These schools were nothing more than camps that stole culture, identity, and childhood away from children who were purposefully kept separate from their community in an ethnic cleansing our state still struggles to take full accountability for. Conditions in the schools were horrible, and the treatment of the children was undeniably cruel. By the 1970s, being forced to recognize the gross inadequacies of the schools and abuse of the children, most shut their doors. During this time, similar schools and institutions for children and adults with disabilities were still operating throughout Minnesota. Genetic genocide. Thousands of unmarked graves still exist in the cemeteries, shadowed by the places many were sent to as children, and never came out of alive. But not all of them looked like the gruesome scenes coming out of the indigenous industrial schools or the backwards Bobby Kennedy exposed to the nation when he showed up to the Willowbrook State School in New York unannounced in 1965. Some seemed perfect. And back along the shores of Lake Minnetonka and its surrounding acres, now home to expansive mansions and the nation's largest privately held company, set another beautiful home. It's here that our first episode will take place, in a manicured and masterfully designed neighborhood that allowed its inhabitants winding drives and privacy to enjoy the life of well-to-do Minnesotans. Down one of these winding drives in a big, marvelous home that backed up to Minnehaha Creek were children with disabilities who spent most of the day tied down in cribs that lined the walls. We call it Home of the Angels because they are all our little angels, the woman who ran the home told the newspaper during an expose where she stands next to her husband smiling. It's so hard for me to look at this photo from the future, knowing what, I know as she stands so proud in her kitchen. I have so many things I want to say to her. I have so many things I want to ask her. I want to know why. Let's find out together as we explore what life has been like for people with disabilities in Minnesota and what we need to grow together towards a more accessible and inclusive tomorrow. Our first few episodes expose what it was really like for children with disabilities and the people hired to support them in Minnetonka Mills, Home of the Angels, where the children were treated as anything but. Welcome to Uncovering Inclusion.
1: You want to read it? Uh, yeah. Okay. So it says Angels by Jack Musi. What? Well, no. Home of the Angels was okay. on, on in Minnetonka Mills. Okay. Do you know where that is? Uh-oh. Well, Minnetonka Mills is not far. Um, I don't know. It's not far from Wayzata. And this was a beautiful home for Babies, Mm -hmm. severely retarded. Mm -hmm. They called them retarded. Mm -hmm. Retarded babies, severely. And it was a gorgeous old home with with beautiful landscaping in Minnetonka Mills. And she had, down on the lower level, she had bed and beds and beds and beds. She had all these little babies.
0: That's Shirley. In November of 2019, I was able to interview Shirley about Home of the Angels, where she took her infant son, John, to live more than 50 years ago. Throughout our interview, you may hear a woman in the background. This is the voice of my friend, Callie, an international disability advocate and the granddaughter of Shirley, who supported Shirley now in her mid-90s throughout the interview. We
1: took John there
0: when he was a baby Mm -hmm.
1: and they didn't you couldn't see visit your child you could only come on visiting day and visiting day they had them all fixed up and pretty dressed little baby girls with dresses and and, uh, visiting day was quite a thing they'd have picnic and but you couldn't go any other day and we always wondered why
0: Okay, to some of you, this might sound kind of absurd. So we're going to take a quick history break here and talk about how parenthood was experienced by some wealthy white women in the 1960s and how social services worked in Minnesota um, from then to the mid-1970s when special education was enacted federally so all children could have access to public school. I'll explain all of this with the help of my interview with Shirley.
1: First, I had a tubular pregnancy. Mm-hmm.
0: Then I had... God, that must have been so scary back then.
1: So it ruined the tube, you
0: know. The, yeah, how did they deal with that? Well, they back, just had to take it out?
1: That, back then, they didn't know it was tubular. Oh. Okay. And I was in a Catholic hospital, and they wouldn't do a DNC because it was not allowed. Sure. So oh. I just had an infection and had to deal with an infection for a long, long time. Anyway, then... Becky was born and she was normal. She was born in 1950, uh-huh. and then five years later, uh, I had um, anencephalic. Do you know what that is? No. Anencephalic. It's another thing. We lived in this small town in South Dakota, mm-hmm. where we moved when we were first married. And uh, if you think Minnesota or all over Nebraska was <laughs> South Dakota was so <laughs> far behind. Yeah. And I had a small-town doctor, and uh, he kept saying, "Oh, baby sounds fine, you know, and all this stuff, but I I didn't gain any weight hardly at all. Mm -hmm. So then, let's see, she, of course, they didn't know it was a she. She was due in December, Mm -hmm. but she was born on Becky's birthday, which was November 7th.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. And... how was it now we we had to drive 35 miles to Sioux Falls South Dakota to the hospital and I got there and I wondered why I was not big but I gained so much weight right well it it turned out to be uh, Uh, I get what you're saying where there's like water yeah all water and this little baby yeah and this little baby and we got to this nice hospital in Sioux Falls and this doctor was he said, "Was he? He was swearing and everything else." He said, "Didn't that doctor know that this, this was a tumor growth of water?" And I said, "I didn't know that, you know." Anyway, well, the baby was born with without. <clears throat> what should I say? Without a brain. Oh God, brain that's stem. so hard. Yeah. Just a brain stem, I guess. And,
0: yeah.
1: Uh, I remember the doctor that delivered. Said, "Don't pray for this baby to live." Yeah. And, of course, they don't live here long. Like,
0: yeah.
1: Like 24 hours or so. Yeah. And I, they never would let me see the baby. You didn't get to see it? Mm-mm. They absolutely would not let you see them. Because they thought it would be too traumatizing or what? I guess. I don't know. Yeah, about. I'm sure it would. It probably would have been. But my husband saw the baby, and my mother and father came from Omaha, and they have a little funeral. And they got to see the baby, but I stayed in the hospital a, you know, a little bit longer for some reason But the th- sad thing about when you can't see A baby or hold a baby You mm-hmm. don't believe it Sure. And what happened is When Becky was 5 years old And when she would go to school in the morning I would take all her dolls and hold the dolls huh. I mean, it was horrible uh-huh. They just didn't know how to deal with things like this And of course my husband didn't deal with it At all mm. So did people just not really talk to he you had, about it? And he had a, My father-in-law was president of the bank in this little town he ran the whole town everybody was scared to death of him he was just a devil <laughs> but I remember he he came over and he said you better do something for yourself before you bring any of those I can't remember what he called them any of those freaks before you have any more freaks something like that you know that was just the nicest thing to say I'm so sorry mm-hmm how did that make you feel oh I felt horrible and you know Today I would have stood up to, I would have left, I would have left my husband at that time, I should have, because his father had control of everything. Mm -hmm. He was in complete control.
0: Believing that a disability is caused because of something bad a mother did has long been a belief held in many cultures, religions, and unfortunately, throughout much of humanity's collective historical recollection. In the medical community surrounding children with disabilities, this is known as mother-blaming. According to an article in the American Journal of Medicine, Journal of Ethics, around mothering and autism, the author writes, This history begins with a moral panic over the behavior of the urban poor. A new notion of middle-class childhood that arose at the end of the 19th century, characterized by pampering, protection, and education, fostered fears over troublesome children. Children with disabilities or low intellectual ability, street children, and juvenile delinquents. Children in these categories were targeted by a child-saving movement, funded by the upper class and staffed by the middle class, particularly middle-class women, united in their vision that poverty, immorality, and antisocial behavior could best be attacked by reshaping childhood. These child savers undertook myriad initiatives, compulsory education, settlement houses, juvenile courts, reform schools, welfare departments, child protection organizations, and research centers focused on child psychology, psychiatry, behavior, and criminology. The child-saving institutions, most relevant to later treatment of autism and just to disabilities were child research facilities and the child guidance movement, which sought to put research findings into practice. In 1922, the Commonwealth Fund boosted the campaign to prevent delinquency by underwriting demonstration programs at American child guidance clinics for children with emotional and behavioral problems, as well as those believed to have criminal tendencies, and by spreading the use to, of standardized psychological and intelligence testing. For the first time, the mass popularization pardon, the mass population of children and mothers could be examined. And I would argue according to whose standards, right? Uh, Clinical work was typically with mothers rather than the children themselves. For example, sociologist Ernest Groves, who with his wife Gladys Groves, pioneered marriage counseling with child guidance clinics, declared that even typical mothering was pathological and in need of scientific improvement. The Groves suggested that both too much affection and too little attention could impair development and direct appearance towards professional guidance to get the balance right. Again, I would argue, according to whom? Through books, radio programs, speaking tours, and magazine articles, pundits like the Groves, pediatricians, and... uh, psychologist W.D. Winnicott and eventually psychologist Bruno Bettelheim sought to change the behavior of mothers to prevent social disorder, crime, and disability. Only with professional guidance and scientific practice, they argued. And I'm going to add in, I don't know, turning culture into products, right? And then selling them and telling people they need them to be correct. Ugh, I get mad just reading this. Um, Anyway, they argued that um, mothers could uh, save their children and, by extension, society um, by using correct mothering practices. And this practice was extensively described, starting with the right way to hold and feed an infant and uh, moving on through when and how often children should be hugged, kissed, scolded, or spanked. Psychologists claimed um, correct maternal behavior would lead to hardworking, self-disciplined, law-abiding adults. Any variance would create weak-minded, badly-behaved, uh, abhorrent adults with a propensity for crime and radicalism. Ugh. Okay, so really, what what this is talking about is that up until this point you know people were just like wow this people people thought a lot of things about uh children with disabilities who were born and they still do right in some in some cultures people uh born with disabilities are magical and in other cultures they're thrown into the garbage can um you know i'm i was a baby with a disability and um went through the adoption system just fine, but I'm also white, you know, and in and in a, a Midwestern culture. So, um, basically, regardless of any of that, what's happening is we're seeing what happens a lot of times in basically any capitalist democracy, I would argue, uh, is that a, a dominant group, right, in this case, uh, people with, Uh, who had the resources all the way back in the early 1900s to uh, go to college and become psychologists and study things. And therefore they were able to uh, be the experts in a pool of people where there weren't very many and kind of make up the rules of, of what was normal and wasn't normal. And And because they were the ones making up the rules, then they also were able to kind of like sell their services and their products to other people who they deemed were just like automatically crappy parents no matter what if they didn't do it the way that these people said. Um, Therefore, making a lot of money off of basically shaming women, (laughs) which is a lot of advertising and I would argue what a lot of, capitalistic democracy is you know that's what free markets do i think they create cultures of individualism and shame not just for women but for any group that's not the dominant group making the decision and so i think this is when um it gets even worse probably it, it i think it i think it's always been worse or different right for people born with disabilities but um when it now becomes um uh, when shame gets added to that and now it's the mother's fault then you know that she doesn't want she doesn't want to be viewed as as if a she's broken as well. So um if you hear little clicking, the we have uh my partner Gina and I, we have three dogs. Um and it's quarantine, and we need to get their nails trimmed, and so that's their little nails clicking on the floors. Um, but anyway, all of these debates, uh, nature versus nurture, the study of genetics, which I find so fascinating, but I'm always terrified to get into because of the terrible things that happen when we uh, talk about genetics, Uh medical and social models of disability these are all still discussed today although now we tend to prefer kind of double entendres and ridiculous terms and acronyms nobody remembers when we're talking about them I've posted some links to interesting information for people who would like to kind of have a starting point to make decisions about what they believe about all of this if thinking about what it's like for people with disabilities and um, how that intersects with people's power and social class and things like that, depending on where they're born. Again, um, we're focusing in Minnesota, the United States. If you want kind of a jumping-off point to um, make your own decision, um, I'm posting links for you. And just so you know... um, because I'm I'm totally biased. I'm a, I'm a person with disabilities. Uh, my opinion right now, anyway, is that standards, averages, terms like typical and healthy. These are all things that are interpreted um, in a moment in time. And I think that about almost all um, data or history is that it's it's taken from individual people at a moment in time. So I don't believe, um, in some kind of like ultimate truth or ultimate standard, um, or like best way. I think that, um, I think that, uh, data points in the world are just kind of that they're data points for us to be able to interpret information. And that, um, information is typically interpreted by who's in power and, the less uh, inclusive, we have decision-making uh, bodies, um, then the less inclusive, those data points are gonna be. That's, that's basically it. Um, so I'm pretty pragmatic about that. Uh, so I will probably skew that way whenever I'm posting these kinds of things. You know, when I was little, um, my brother, he used to make up games to play and whenever he would start to lose he would change the rules and I'd get so mad I would be like hey that's not fair you can't just change the rules and my brother would smirk and he would be like of course I can change the rules I made the game and so he would win every time and I never had a chance to get anything but second place before we even started because I didn't make the rules of the game and so basically that's sort of what is happening when Shirley's explaining um, her pregnancy and, and when I'm explaining kind of the uh, view of disabilities and and what people thought when a baby with a disability was born uh, back when Shirley was pregnant is that just like she didn't get to make any of the rules and so just everything was her fault and she couldn't win. I couldn't believe
1: that I was pregnant at 40 and um, uh, we still were going to get a divorce and, and, uh, but Cal said well let's stay together until our child is born. My brother-in-law was a doctor mm-hmm. in New York, New Jersey and I know he said, he said when I first got pregnant the doctor said you know this because of your past history. And your age, there's not a lot of hope that you're going to have a normal child. Mm-hmm. But I was so sure that was, everything was going to be fine. And and my brother-in-law said, you know, you can't have an abortion legally, but if you want to come to New Jersey, uh, we can put you on a boat. Do you remember hearing about this? No. If but you're I out remember. in the waters... I know a boat like that, that still does it. Mm-hmm. If you're out in the waters... Off the coast of New York or New Jersey, uh, we could do an abortion.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: He wouldn't, but I mean, he, he knew somebody that would. Yep. He said, "You, it's up to you.
0: Abortion access at this time was dangerous, criminal, and sometimes fatal. Most often, it was only available to well-connected white women who had their own private insurance. Shirley was in a relationship that was ending, while still enjoying a lifestyle that necessitated more than just her income. Also, there's all the other stuff. You know, the other stuff. The things that aren't nice to say out loud, according to people from the greatest generation, who gossip in some kind of marvelous code I could listen to for hours. And I did listen to it for hours growing up. I grew up Minnesota nice with a Grammy who was passive-aggressive by way of Texas. She sat with her ladies every day right in front of the front door of the assisted living center and knew who was coming in and out. She was the volunteer mail carrier, my cheerleader, and my Grammy was one of my very awesome friends I could visit with back then outside of my dreams. Uh, Grammy taught me a lot of weird shit because she grew up where it was normal to not have flushing toilets um and there were tornadoes all the time but for whatever reason people just like never had an adequate shelter so she would play hymns on the piano and tell me to sing to god in case we die which is terrible that's terrible advice but Something she did teach me is that I learned how to listen to everything people say when they choose to say something else instead. Sort of like the hidden language within language. I learned that when someone says, "I'm not saying the dress was ugly," that they they definitely do think it's hideous. Or uh, if someone says, "I have no problem with Denise." Uh, they mean they definitely have a problem with Denise. I didn't really kinda know this. It was like really hard for me uh growing up to catch on to things like this. So uh it's been important to learn for um interviewing. I also I volunteered on the dementia floors of my Grammy's nursing home during the summers in junior high and I learned how to follow people down the path of disconnected memories as they tell you a story, to listen with my whole entire self. It's really hard for me to listen without making assumptions or injecting my experience into another person's story. I'm not at a point in my life where listening with my whole self is my default. I I'm not a default active listener. I get nervous. I guide conversations so I can feel in control because talking to other people about anything I'm not incredibly passionate about it just it makes me feel really really insecure. I'm thinking things like that person keeps looking over to the left when they're talking to me. They don't want to actually be talking to me. What do I do or obsessively trying to watch for cues uh, to understand what I'm supposed to do back. Typically, talking with people who are uh, around others who communicate in diverse ways, uh, like at assisted living centers, um, it's really fun talking to them and a little bit easier because they're used to being an active listener. They help each other remember words or parts of stories, and they're more familiar with just modified or diverse communication. Uh, so Shirley was not like that at all. Uh, this was probably one of the harder things for me during this interview, besides not reacting when I knew Shirley was fudging the edges of some stories the way we all do when we're creating a narrative to be remembered by. I mean, really, I just kind of was like, oh, I wonder if all sounds so matter of fact, if I ever get to be in my 90s talking to someone 60 years younger about life. I'm both in awe of Shirley and I also feel judgmental. I'm also so thankful for the courage to share and to tell. I'm frustrated at everything she skates over and talks around, that she kind of lies so brazenly and that I sit and nod my head to encourage her to keep going, and it's like there's this unspoken social rule that it would be rude for me to confront her, to confront the lie. Every time I try to ask a direct question, she sort of starts down a path of a completely different story. Like, she just completely ignores everything she doesn't want to hear. But I'm also not pressing her, really, in any way. You know, I'm honored to be recording the voice and story of someone with such a long, well-lived and interesting life. I'm just pissed at how little John seems to be a part of it. My friend Lotia has a saying I'll never forget that describes this kind of thing perfectly. Uh, we were in a, a coffee shop uh, visiting her in Amsterdam and... um or you know what? It could have been in St. Paul. Either way, uh, we were getting um, croissants. I'm not going to say croissant because that's ridiculous. But uh, so Lotia said, um, it's like you order a croissant and you get a really good baguette. So it's, it's like it's still bread and it's warm and it's great. But it's just like it's not what you ordered. That's how I feel. That's how I feel about Shirley. And honestly, though, why am I mad at her? Of all people, the things she talks around and says here and there about being pregnant with John should make anyone enraged that the systems, like, honestly really, really failed Shirley and her family. And society failed her, too. And I'm... I guess mom blaming just like that article you know Shirley's husband he came back from World War II with support needs for his mental health that he just he never received and most of the men then didn't receive it either I don't I don't even think we talked about post-traumatic stress disorder so to cope with this Shirley's husband, he drank. And then to cope with his drinking and feeling out of control, he turned into an abuser and would physically abuse and verbally abuse Shirley. Um, You know now, Shirley is raising a, a teenager while she's pregnant, basically on her own. Uh, Because her husband moves to the East Coast. So they're still married to each other. But they're not like living as a family uh, unit. So she's kind of like this single mom in this house on a lake with this teenager. um, In the 1960s, during the most transformative years uh, since present day, basically. And um, she's still in pain over losing her second baby. Her baby before John, who she never even got to see. She didn't even get to say goodbye to. And so, you know, sometimes Shirley pops a valium. But, you know, she's also, she's a hustler. Shirley is gorgeous. And her brother-in-law is giving her this opportunity to have a different life. Something that wouldn't be possible for a majority of women until the next decade in the 70s when the Supreme Court decided Roe versus Wade and affirmed women's constitutional right to own their bodies. So what does Shirley do? And he
1: came, John was just about three weeks early, so. And the doctor that delivered him they knew right away, I could tell. I remember looking at the nurses' faces, and nobody smiled, and I never heard any crying, no baby crying or anything. And then finally, they sent a pediatrician in the next day and, and told, you know, at that time, they were still
0: calling them Mongolian idiots. Did, so wait, did you hold him or anything, or did he, just, he was just born, and they just kind of yes, took they, him away? They said he
1: couldn't, he brought him in, and said he couldn't possibly nurse. There was no way he could nurse. And he couldn't even take a bottle because he didn't have any enough section. I don't know how they fed him. I really don't. But anyway, after he was born, the minister or the assistant minister or something came over, and I was never coerced into not bringing him home. Mm-hmm. It wasn't that at all. Mm-hmm. And but I knew, working with them and being 40 years old enough, and a husband that was somewhat abused physically abusive, and an alcoholic, I thought all I need to do is bring a retarded child into this home. There's no hope for any of us. Wait. So that's why I didn't bring him home.
0: So if you remember from Shirley herself, her and her husband Cal were already on their way to divorce when she got pregnant. Cal agreed to stay married to Shirley through the pregnancy after she decided to not get an abortion. And upon John's birth, Shirley's husband wants to start divorce proceedings exactly like they had planned. There is no home with a father to bring John back to. There is no home with a drunken abuser. It's just Shirley, and she's alone with a fiercely independent teenager and now a baby with Down syndrome. No one is congratulating her. No one is making plans to put the final touches in the nursery. No one is there to smoke a cigar. Then someone comes in and they tell you not to worry. There are places for babies like this where they will be cared for and grow up with children like them and people who know exactly how to take care of them, and you get to go on with the life that you always wanted. You can continue to enjoy yourself guilt-free, and you know what? The government will even pay for it. I don't know what a decision like that feels like. I can imagine how overwhelming it all would feel, how... Completely different from any kind of expectations I had for almost a year, it would be. I think, what kind of mother abandons their baby? And I'm mad. I hate when people treat living things like inanimate objects meant to invoke a certain feeling in its owner or when they're meant to exist just to serve us. I'm bad at doing it as well. This is why Gina and I have three rescue dogs and started most of our plants from leftovers from garden centers that were going to be discarded. Every living thing has value. Every living thing deserves dignity. And I'm so sad for Shirley. I'm so sad because when we looked into each other's eyes, I just, I know deep down that She wanted to have that baby to make up for the one she lost. I know she imagined what life would be like with a beautiful baby in her life now. Maybe then she could fix her marriage or at least have a second chance at being someone's mommy. I also think Shirley doesn't have the resources available now as a single mom to give John and included life. She would need to rely on her teenage daughter as another caregiver and possibly even John's guardian after Shirley dies. That's so much responsibility to give to a new big sister adjusting to the role of sibling anyway. She's 16 and very independent. Like, very. What kid wants to suddenly turn around and be somebody's caregiver and Shirley's husband who turns into a drunken shit monster is asking for a divorce instead of offering any kind of emotional support I mean he was part of making John and all of this is going on while people speak in hushed whispers around Shirley Shirley isn't getting you know gifts or flowers from people Her baby can't attach to her and feed. One moment you expected your life to change forever in one way, and then it's going to change forever in a totally different and unexpected way. And back then, it's not like Shirley can Google it. Plus, I doubt there are huge parenting sections called How to Raise Your Down Syndrome Child as an Active and Included Member of the Community. Having a baby with a disability makes you a couple of things automatically. You have to learn to be an advocate, a social worker, and not give up as you get sent back and forth between state agencies. You have to learn how to navigate disability services. And learning child services, it takes years. And then there are adult services, which is set up quite similar to the for-profit prison industry here in Minnesota. And... The minute you form a relationship with a social worker or a county manager or someone who actually knows how to send an email attachment instead of a fax, they're gone. And on to the next state job at the park service or in housing and you're stuck catching everyone up over and over again to the point where sometimes it feels like all you do is disability advocacy. Would I just want it to all go back to normal if I could? What's the new normal for Shirley? And what about John? Next time on Uncovering Inclusion.